Welcome back to Mark's Madness. Yes. Last time on Black Reconstruction, we had a moment where we were kind of worried that Du Bois was, <laughs> was waffling a little bit on the whole slavery that thing. Was, it seemed that weird. Was, that was terrifying. That was a little, yeah, had a little, a little that oh was, shit moment. That was so, My, I, I had a turtle head poking out. Yeah, I was, I, I was, yeah. Was, hey, this is one of the most fundamental, fundamental works in, uh, in you know, African-American theory and literature in America. Yes. Oh, wait, it's going to equivocate on slavery. Whoops. Doodle. We did a little bit of a one. Yes. Um, okay. Well, my voice is already going for nice. This is gonna. This is sounding great. This yes. Is, this, is, this is portending well. So let's just <laughs> launch into it. Okay. Uh, so we're going back again. We're starting on page ten for anyone following yes. along. Um, we are right after the the whole part where we kind of do this whole equivocating on. Well, slavery is actually bad, guys. I don't know if yes. you're aware. Um, the proof of this lies clearly written in the slave codes. Slaves were not considered men. They had no right of petition. They were divisible like any other chattel. They could own nothing. They could make no contracts. They could hold no property nor traffic in property. They could not hire out. They could not legally marry nor constitute families. They could not control their children. They could not appeal from their master. They could not be, they could be punished at will. They could not testify in court. They could be imprisoned by their owners and the criminal offense of assault and battery could not be committed on the person of a slave. The willful, malicious and deliberate murder of a slave was punishable by death, but such a crime was practically impossible of proof. The slave owed to his master and all his family a respect without bounds and an absolute obedience. This authority could be transmitted to others. A slave could not sue his master, had no right of redemption, no right to education or religion. A promise made to a slave by his master had no force or validity. Children followed the condition of a, the slave mother. The slave could have no access to the judiciary. A slave might be condemned to death for striking any white person. Condemned to death for yeah. striking any white person. Look at these accounts. It is safe to say that the law regards a Negro slave, so far as his civil status is concerned, purely and absolutely pro- – it, it just says purely and absolute property, yeah, not no. as. That was weird. Yeah, it's I thought not it was as. Purely and absolutely property to be bought and sold and pass and descend as a tract of land, a horse, or an ox. The whole legal status of slavery was enunciated in the extraordinary statement of a chief justice of the United States that Negroes had always been regarded in America as having no rights which a white man was bound to respect. Super cool. Yeah. Supreme Court, the place that all the fucking liberals right now seem to be putting all their hopes and prayers into. And and yeah, trust me, that's much more in line with its history than any any bullshit that you think Mm -hmm. Ruth Bader Ginsburg does. It may be said in truth that the law is was often harsher than the practice. Nevertheless, these laws and decisions represent a legally permissible the legally permissible possibilities and the only curb upon power of master was his sense of humanity and decency on the one hand and the conserving of his investment on the other. I feel like he only Mm. cared much more about the second one Yep. of the humanity of large numbers of Southern masters. There can be no doubt. Yes, there can. In some cases they gave their slaves a fatherly care. Why is the boys doing this again? I don't, I don't know what, again, I have to assume that there was that the wide, Again, because the way this work is positioned, as we know, is as a way to refute the dominant narrative of the time. This yeah. is supposed to be the ref- – and so I assume the if the dominant the narrative is slaveholders were actually really great to their slaves, there was no need for emancipation or anything oh, like that. Oh, it's like, well, sure, of course he fed them. Yeah, there, I okay. think there's some – if that's the dominant narrative, you have to give – 
you have to acknowledge at least that narrative's existence if you're going to get any headway in trying to defeat it. You're going to have to yeah. show, yes, there are some elements of truth. Here are the fundamental falsehoods. And so he's probably equivocating more than we would like because this is not, this is intended to be a persuasive work. Gotcha, gotcha. That's my that's my take on it. Based on the based on the background we did and, and knowing what was yes. going on at the time, that's that how sense. I would take okay. that. And yet, even in such cases, the strain upon their ability to care for large numbers of people and the necessity of trusting the care of slaves to the other to hands other than their own led to much suffering and cruelty the matter of his investment in land and slaves greatly curtailed the owner's freedom of action under the competition of growing industrial organization the slave system was indeed the source of immense profits but for the slave owner and landlord to keep a large or even reasonable share of these profits was increasingly difficult the price of the slave produce in the open market could be hammered down by merchants and traders acting with knowledge and collusion and the slave owner was therefore continually forced to find his profit, not in the high price of cotton and sugar, but in beating even further down the cost of his slave labor. <laughs> beating down the cost of free labor. Yeah, I wonder if there's a little euphemism with the beating down since what he's oh, refuting. Yeah. For sure. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, this made the slave owners in early days kill the slave by overwork and renew their working stock. It led to a widely organized interstate slave trade between the border states and the cotton kingdom of the so- of the southern south. The southern south. Yeah, that seems weird. That's, you know, I had a can of, of vegetable soup that I had bought. And I bought it because it was behind another like hearty vegetable soup. But I didn't care pay attention that there was a different can behind it when I bought it. I went back to work. I looked at my can of soup to eat and it was no shit called vegetarian vegetable soup. I <laughs> <kid> you not. <laughs> so, anyway, uh, that's awesome. It led to neglect and the breaking up of families and it could not protect the slave against the cruelty, lust and neglect of certain owners. Thus, human slavery in the South pointed and led in two singularly contradictory contradictory and paradoxical directions toward the deliberate commercial breeding and sale of human labor for profit and toward the intermingling of black and white blood. The slaveholders shrank from acknowledging either set of facts, but they were clear in the undeniable. They were clear and undeniable. In this vital respect, the slave laborer differed from all others of his day. He could be sold. He could at the will of a single individual be transferred for life a thousand miles or more. His family, wife and children could be legally and absolutely taken from him. Free laborers today are compelled to wander in search of work and food. Their families are deserted for want of wages. But in all this, there is no such direct barter in human flesh. It was a sharp accentuation of control over men beyond the modern labor reserve or the contract coolie system. Negroes could be sold, actually sold, as well as we sell cattle with no reference to calves or bulls or recognition of family. It was a nasty business. The white South was properly ashamed of it, and it continually belittled and almost denied it. Uh, I wouldn't go so far into the shame thing. <laughs> it's giving him more credit than I'd give him, but fine. Uh, but it was a stark and bitter fact. Southern papers of the border and states were filled with advertisements. I wish to purchase 50 Negroes of both sexes from 6 to 30 years of age, for which I will give the highest cash prices. Wanted to purchase Negroes of every description, age, and sex. The consequent disruption of families is proven beyond doubt. <laughs> 
$50 reward ran away from the subscriber, a Negro girl named Maria. She is of copper color between 13 and 14 years of age, bareheaded and barefooted. She is small for her age, very slightly and light, very likely. She stated she was going to see her mother in Maysville, Sanford Thompson. You know, uh, there is, you were talking about shame. There is a level of respectability that, that, you know, I mean, even wealthy people and very cruel people like to deny. They don't like being called, you know, racist these days, right? Yeah. I mean, back in that day, it could be like, you know, we don't like that that we tear apart. It doesn't matter. You could buy and sell people. They're below you. There was certainly some ethnic slurs that were thrown around. Um, yes. yes. Yes, there were. Uh, but the idea of, well, we ripped families apart. They didn't, you know, I mean, just like, just like I'm sure, you know, they don't want to hear about concentration camps and ripping families apart on the southern border now you know there was a uh you know oh we don't do that we're not yeah. we're not the bad ones I could say we're, we're just making a profit so yeah i mean i could see that that level of shame you know maybe it's not to the point where like someone wealthy now hates talking about how much money they make or looking rich and tries to call themselves poor all the time around working class people you know how that happens i do i don't know if it's quite that level but I, i'm sure there was some level of acceptable society they weren't catholic in the south they didn't know actual shame they're they're fine they're moving on the baptists don't deal with shame they just repress uh <laughs> committed to jail of madison county a negro woman who calls her name fanny she says she belongs to william miller of mobile she formerly belonged to john Givens of this county who now owns several of her children David Shopshire, jailer. $50 reward ran away from the subscriber, his Negro man, Polidor, commonly called Paul. I understand General R.Y. Esquire has them on his plantation at Goose Creek, where no doubt the fellow is frequently lurking. T. Davis. One can see Polidor lurking about his wife and children. The slave, the system of slavery demanded a special police force, and such a force was made possible and unusually effective by the presence of the poor whites. This explains the difference between the slave revolts in the West Indies and the lack of effective result in the southern United States. In the West Indies, the power over the slave was held by the whites and carried out by them and such Negroes as they could trust. In the South, on the other hand, the great planters formed proportionally quite a small, quite as small a class, but they had singularly enough at their command some five million poor whites. That is where there are actually more white people to police the slaves than there were slaves. Considering the economic rivalry of the black and white worker in the North, it would have seemed natural that the poor white would have refused to police the slaves. But two considerations led him in the opposite direction. First of all, it gave him work and some authority as overseer, slave driver, and member of the patrol system. Overseer. That's the name I was trying to think of at the end of the last episode. But above and beyond this, it has fed his vanity because it associated him with the masters. Slavery bred in the poor white a dislike of Negro toil of all sorts. He never regarded himself as a laborer or of any part of any labor movement. If he had any ambition at all, it was to become a planter and to own N-word slur. To these Negroes, he transferred all the dislike and hatred which he had for the whole slave system. The result was that the system was held unstable and intact by the poor white. Even with the late ruin of Haiti before their eyes, the planters, stirred as they were, were nevertheless able to stamp out slave revolt. The dozen revolts of the 18th century had dwindled to the plot of Gabriel in 1800, Vesey in 1822, Nat Turner in 1831, and the crews of the Armistead and Creole in 1839 and 1841. Gradually, the whole white South became an armed and commissioned camp to keep Negroes in slavery and kill the black rebel. 
that is a very interesting paragraph. <laughs> there yeah. is a lot in that. Um, but I think most importantly, I think that's that that was a concept that I don't really think I had a full handle on. No. And I should have, but the, the whole where in Haiti and when that slave revolt happened, the slaves absolutely outnumbered the masters and, yeah. and anyone that would support the masters. Yeah. It was a very obvious situation. It was, it was a very obvious bugs life moment where it's like, if we just figure out that there are more of us than there are of them, we win. <laughs> I'm sorry. That movie is universally relevant in all situations. It is perfect. And I will, I will not hear you slander. It. Nathan, the bugs life chronicles. I fucking love that movie. Um, that being said, <laughs> at the end of the movie, just like Rocky Three, they they honored our brave Mujahideen, Mujahideen fighters. fighters. Yeah, yes. no, I think the, was the honor of the brave Mujahideen fighters. Yeah, it was at the end of Rocky Three or not yeah. Rocky Three? Well, not Rocky Three. Rambo shit. Three. I Rambo got very concerned. I was like, isn't that the one? <laughs> Rocky Three. Rocky Three was also Cold War shit. No, I was, thought that was Rocky Four. Oh, that was Rocky that was Rocky Four. Four. I was like, Rocky guys, Three. There was like it was just a bad Rocky movie. Yeah, yeah. I think I think Mr. T was in that one. Mm. I don't know. Um, but yes, no, uh, it's, but no, it's very much that. Whereas the South, it was a larger number of people policing it. And you see the roots of this lack of class awareness in this country going yeah. back to that because it's exactly, Du Bois points it out. If you look from a poor white laborer to the slaves, and then you've got three parties involved. You've got mm-hmm. slaves, poor white laborers, masters, yes. ruling class. Obviously, the, bad the poor guys white, the poor white laborer, if they had any concept of class interest or self awareness, would look at the slaves and go, "We are far closer to this position than we are the other one," and yet they side with the mas- They side with the masters because they get something out of it, and it's expedient. It's something it's, out of it. It's expedient, and it's that. Sh- it's built. It's that. Ra- it's racism. Clearance. Yeah. It's racism. Yes. Yes. And and. This is why racism is so important to upholding colonialism and capitalism is, of course, of course, built on colonialism. And racism is one of the most effective tools for disrupting any form of class consciousness because mm-hmm. it puts another. Ba- I mean, capitalism well, is at, all about putting barriers between. Look at the the other output of colonialism today is imperialism, right? Correct. And look at how racism is used there. Exactly. Against, you know, West Asia. It's an it's an innate tool. It's an it's a. It's probably one of the best, if not the best tool that capitalism has at alienating yeah. workers from one another, from keeping people, because it puts just another barrier between, yes, should all laborers be aligned? And I, I'm not trying, I am not trying to be class reductionist about this, but no. it, it should all workers innately, you know, identify more with themselves than with the ruling class? Absolutely. But racism gives you a, 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 powerful tool that helps obfuscate that, that helps cloud that image a little bit and yeah. try and put a barrier between you and and someone you should be aligned with. Well, we've talked about this for a long, long time, right? I mean, you can't just have socialism, you have decolonization. Yeah. You're not going to have I mean, decolonization yeah. if you let the racism override. What you have to do is you have to topple the ruling class as a large mass. There's, there's more of it. There's your bug's life, right? Yeah, so... I mean, basically, you know, we're we're going to be a larger mass than them. And yes. we can only use those numbers if we have all of us fighting the other and going up. We can't do that if there are huge portions of us that need liberation the most left behind, giant holes in our movement. We have to liberate from the bottom up. We yeah. have to and and what racism does is it makes you look expediently. It makes you look at the well, these people are below me. They don't deserve liberation. We'll we'll treat that we'll we'll show them socialism. We'll show them our, our great theories and we'll we'll do it our way instead of like liberating them on their terms and fighting these capitalists together. Yeah. You know, that's what we have to do. Hundred percent. 
100%. Under the situation, as it developed between 1830 and 1860, there were grave losses to the capital invested in black workers. God, I hate that sentence. Yeah. <laughs> Not loving a lot of these sentences so far. Encouraged by the idealism of the Northern thinkers who insisted that Negroes were human, the black workers sought freedom by running away from slavery. The physical geography of America, with its paths north by swamp, river, and mountain range, the daring of black revolutionists like Henson and Tubman, and the extra-legal efforts of abolitionists made this more and more easy. One cannot know the real facts concerning the number of fugitives, but despite the fear of advertising the losses, the emphasis put upon fugitive slaves by the South shows that it was an important economic item. It is certain from the bitter effort to increase the efficiency of the fugitive slave law that the losses from the runaways were widespread and continuous. And the increase in the interstate slave trade from border states to the Deep South, together with the increase in price of slaves, showed a growing pressure. At the beginning of the 19th century, one bought an average slave for $200. Well, in 1860, the price ranged from $1,400 to $2,000. Not only was the fugitive slave important because of the actual loss involved, but for the potentialities in the future, these free Negroes were furnishing a leadership for the mass of the black workers, and especially they were furnishing a text for the abolitionist ideals. Fugitive slaves like Frederick Douglass and other humbler and less gifted increased in number of abolitionists by thousands and spelled the doom of slavery. We're losing our American values to these free slaves. What will we do? The whole thing's collapsing. Uh, the true significance of slavery in the United States, the whole social development of America, lay in the ultimate relation of slaves to democracy. Uh, what if... What were to be the limits of democratic control in the United States? If all labor, black as well as white, became free, were given schools and the right to vote, what control could or should be set to the power and action of these laborers? What was the rule of the mass Americans to be unlimited and the right of rule to be extended to all men regardless of race and color? Or if not, what power of dictatorship and control and how much would property and privilege be protected? This was the great primary question, which was in the minds of the men who wrote the Constitution of the United States and continued in the minds of the thinkers down through the sl slavery controversy. Calling slavery a controversy yeah. just feels, feels a little understated there, it's, but again. It's, it's, it's like racially charged controversies. Yeah. <laughs> uh, it still remains that that still remains with the world as a problem of democracy expands and touches all races and nations. Yep. And of all human development, ancient and modern, not the least singular and significant is the philosophy of life and action, which slavery bred in the souls of black folk. Ha ha! Call back to his earlier book. In most respects, its expression was stilted and confused. The rolling periods of Hebrew prophecy and biblical legend furnished inaccurate but splendid words. <laughs> All right, all right, all right. Du Bois is a weird, it's a weird dunk on the Hebrews. Yeah, I mean, cool. The subtle folklore of Africa with whimsy and parable, veiled wish and wisdom, and above all, fell the anointing chrism of the slave music and the only gift of pure art in America. I'm gonna bet 
that the uh, the rolling periods of Hebrew prophecy is probably less of a dunk on Jews and more on Christians. Oh no, almost certainly. That's, yeah. yeah, that's a weird, and it, it's probably one of those call outs of of like, yeah, you know, we're the benevolent. You have to spread the word of God and show them their compassion, and then anywhere Christianity has uh, quote unquote spread itself has been brutal colonization. That sounds about right. Yeah, beneath the veil lay right and wrong vengeance and love and sometimes throwing aside the veil a soul of sweet beauty and truth stood revealed nothing else of art or religion did the slave give to the world except the negro song and story and even after slavery down to our day it has added but little to this gift one has but to remember as a symbol of it all still unspoiled by petty artisans the legend of john henry the mighty black who broke his heart working against the machine and died with his hammer in his hand up from this slavery gradually climbed the free negro with clearer modern expression and more definite aim long before the emancipation of 1863 his greatest effort lay in his cooperation with the abolition movement he knew he was not free until all negroes were free Individual Negroes became exhibits of all the possibilities of the Negro race, if it once it was raised above the status of slavery. Even when, as so often, the Negro became court jester to the ignorant American mob, he made his plea in his songs and antics. Thus spoke the noblest slave that ever God set free, Frederick Douglass, in 1852, in his Fourth of July oration at Rochester, voicing the frank and fearless criticism of the black worker. What to the American slave is your 4th of July? I answer a day that reveals to him more than all other days in the year the gross injustice and cruelty to which he is the constant victim. To him, your celebration is a sham. You boasted liberty and unholy license. Your national greatness, swelling vanity, your sounds of rejoicing are empty and heartless. Your denunciation of tyrants. Tyrants, brass-fronted impudence, your shouts of liberty and equality, hollow mockery. Your prayers and hymns, your sermons and thanksgivings with all your religious parade and solemnity are to him mere bombast, fraud, deception, impiety, and hypocrisy. A thin veil to cover up crimes which would disgrace a nation of savages. You boast of your love and li- of liberty, your superior civilization, and your pure Christianity, while the whole political power of the nation, as embodied in the two great political parties, is solemnly pledged to support and perpetuate the enslavement of three millions of your countrymen. You hurl your anathemas as the crown-headed tyrants of Russia and Austria and pride yourselves on your democratic institutions, while you yourself consent to be mere tools and bodyguards of the tyrants of Virginia and Carolina. You invite to your shores fugitives of oppression from abroad. Honor them with banquets, greet them with ovations, cheer them, toast them, salute them, protect them, and pour out your money to them like water. But the fugitives from your own land you advertise, hunt, arrest, shoot, and kill. You glory in your refinement and your universal education, yet you maintain a system as barbarous and dreadful as ever stained the character of a nation. A system begun in avarice, supported in pride, and perpetuated in cruelty. You shed tears over fallen Hungary and make the sad story of her wrongs the theme of your poets, statesmen, and orators, till your gallant sons are ready to fly to arms to vindicate her cause against the oppressors. But in regard to the 10,000 wrongs of the American slave, you would enforce the strictest silence and would hail him as an enemy of the nation who dares to make the wrongs the subject of public discourse. Frederick Douglass could fucking write it down, man. Holy yeah. shit. Yeah. Woo! Yeah. All right. So the last yeah. time I gave a 4th of July speech that negative and passionate, it was about shitty cheap Roman candles. So he's... <laughs> God, why, why have you 
turned into the sarcastic one this episode. What is going on here? No, one no, of that us was, must remain pure. That that was a great speech. Also, I, so the, many details. I was I was gonna because here's the problem: is you stepped on it, and now that's better than. I was gonna say that's the second best Independence Day speech I've heard since that one that Bill Paxton gave during Independence Day, the movie. Rest, rest in peace, Bill Paxton. Rest in peace, Bill Paxton. Is that Bill Paxton or is that Bill Pullman? I always get them fucking confused. I don't know, but one's dead and one's not. So. Yeah, I think it's the I not it's dead Pullman, one. Then. I think it's the not dead Paxton's one. Paxton's the dead one. We Paxton. have not yet begun to fight. <laughs> this is the panic side. Oh yeah, that's get in the plane, Will Smith. Yeah, let's go. <laughs> um, or no, it's not get the plane, Will Smith. Will Smith's in the spaceship. It's get the plane. One of the one of which which is a weird uh, Costner or is a space what's Costner? Who's, who's who's the weird brother in that movie? Oh God, I don't remember that movie that well. Come on, it's the his uh, Dances with Wolves. That's Costner, right? That's Costner. Yeah. Okay, so it's not. Quaid. It's Quaid. It's Randy Quaid. Oh, God. I was trying to think. Yeah, I get Costner and uh, Dennis Quaid confused, but no, it's Randy Quaid uh, just flying up to meet the aliens. This yeah. has been Nathan Recount's Independence Day. That was um, a weird one. This is a nice crossover from the Cock and Bull because I did that <laughs> this week. Apparently, that's just a thing I'm doing now is recounting Independence Day uh, into the National Archives myself. <laughs> there we go. Uh, but that said, no, I mean, listen to some of these that are, are so good, you know, but the fugitives from your own land, you advertise, hunt, arrest shoot and kill yeah. you know i mean he talks about like the system that's so uh you know barbarous that no other nation would would be proud of it and yet they support it with you know pride and it's perpetuated in cruelty and so much of that of course is acute and and very focused on slavery but so much of that could be talked about today in oh, you know yeah. i mean in in the maintained racism in the anti-immigration and the foreign imperialism especially the way we look at the uh, quote-unquote intelligence community and of course the armed forces yeah um, oh, jesus you yes. know i mean it, but it, it's just it's so so poignant in so many ways yeah it it very well is that's a that is a nathan gave me a subtle smirk that none of you guys see because last time i tried to say poignant i said pungent (laughs) (laughs) that's a totally different word yes yes it is a totally different word they both start with p yeah and have an somewhere in them but uh other than that fundamentally different meanings yes english is fun uh above all we must remember the black worker was the ultimate exploited that he formed that mass of labor which had neither with nor power wish nor power to escape from the labor status in order to directly exploit other laborers or indirectly by alliance with capital to share in their exploitation. To be sure, the black mass developed again and again here and there. Capitalistic groups in New Orleans and Charleston, here in uh, in Philadelphia, groups willing to join white capital in exploiting labor. But they were driven back into the mass by racial prejudice before they had reached a permanent foothold and thus became all the more bitter against all organization, which by means of race prejudice or monopoly of wealth sought to exclude men from making a living. It was thus the black worker as founding stone of a new economic system in the 19th century and for the modern world who brought civil war to America. He was its underlying cause, in spite of every effort to base the strife upon union and national power. That dark and vast sea of human labor in China and India, uh, the South Seas and all of Africa, in the West Indies and Central America and in the United States, that great majority of mankind on whose bent and broken backs rest today the founding stones of modern industry, hell yeah, shares a common destiny. 
It is despised and rejected by race and color, paid a wage below the level of decent living, driven, beaten, prisoned, and enslaved in all but name, spawning the world's raw material and luxury, cotton, wool, tea, coca, palm oil, fibers, spices, rubbers, silks, lumber, copper, gold, diamonds, leather. How shall we end the list and where? All of these are gathered up at the prices of the lowest manufactured, transformed, and transported a fabulous gain. And the resultant wealth is distributed and displayed and made the basis of world power and universal dominion and armed arrogance in London and Paris, Berlin and Rome, New York and Rio de Janeiro. Here is the real modern labor problem. Here is the kernel of the problem of religion and democracy, of humanity. Words and futile gestures avail nothing. Out of the exploitation of the dark proletariat comes the surplus value filched from human beasts, which in cultured lands the machine and harness power veil and conceal. The emancipation of man is the emancipation of labor, and the emancipation of labor is the freeing of that basic majority of workers who are yellow, brown, and black. Now listen to that. The emancipation of man Woo! is the emancipation of, of labor. labor. No wonder he did turn into Marxist. Well, labor. fuck. I mean, come on now. Um, <laughs> we're we're dark. You know, out of the exploitation of the dark proletariat comes the surplus value. Phil. I mean, he capitalizes surplus value. He fucking knew what he was talking about. It. He had some concept of it at this point. Yeah, uh, but the most important part of the second sentence and the emancipation of labor is the freeing of that basic majority of mm-hmm. workers who are yellow, brown, and black. And I again, be- that's the basic majority of workers in the world. Maybe you don't. Yeah, maybe you don't. Maybe you don't see that in in the middle of Midwestern whatever. But that's the the workers' majority in the world. Yeah. Oh, yeah. across the globe. Yes. America is a unique on any given continent. Exactly. Except Europe. <laughs> except yeah. Well, um, well Australia. Good question. Yeah, Australia, hit us, up. hit us up, Australia. It's been plenty of genocide in that subtle of colonialism, they've done, they've done, too. They've done quite a bit. But I don't know uh, what the numbers are, the, the, the percentages are. So to end the first uh, first chapter, because this is yes. the end of the first chapter, we're going to read a, a fun fun little outro. He does a little intro paragraph, or a little intro sentence and a little outro thing. Yes. Dark shackled nights of labor clinging still amidst a universal wreck of faith to cheerfulness and foreigners to hate. These know ye not, these have ye not received. But these shall speak to you beatitudes. Around them surge the tides of all your strife. Above them rise the august moments, monuments, of all your outward splendor. But they stand unenvious in thought and bide their time. Leslie P. Hill. Yeah. All right. And then, guys, it's time for chapter two. We're oh cha- boy. We're chapter two in it, guys. We are halfway through this episode. <laughs> we are halfway through this episode. We have stopped. We are overlapping chapters, guys. We are we are getting with. This is all right. So here's the thing. This is uh we did the math last episode. If we go on the same pace, it would take 76 episodes to do this. We are yes. just gonna read the book as fast as we can read the damn book. Okay. <laughs> Artificial page breaks need not exist here. We're gonna read them in about our chunks. And that's just what you're going to get. Okay. <laughs> so deal with it as you will. Okay. And uh, yeah. So Unless David needs go. to go. No, 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 no. I don't need to go. We're good. We're good. Keep okay. Going. Chapter two, the white worker. I have a feeling I will like this chapter far less than I did the last chapter. <laughs> it's going to be self-awareness chapter. It's not good. <sighs> it's going to be good. Oh, long, long, long subtitle. Long subtitle. How America became the laborer's promised land and flocking here from all the world, the white workers compacted with black slaves, with new floods of foreigners and with growing exploitation until they fought slavery to save democracy and then lost democracy in a new and vaster slavery. Man, 
uh, as someone that has to do titles and subtitles for podcasts, th- you've got to learn to be more concise there, Du Bois. Like that's that I can't fit that in iTunes. That's not going to go. <laughs> you're going to need you're going to need to get quicker with it. Twitter would hate you. Okay. This is insanity. No, that hey, that is just within the a uh, tweet. That are you? I count those characters, man, because that's I, close. Okay, fine. I'm just sorry. Don't. Yeah. <laughs> I thought you were about to start actually counting <laughs> yeah. characters on the podcast. I was about to come across a pod cave and kill you. The opportunity for real and new democracy in America was broad. Political power was at first, as usual, confined to property holders and an aristocracy of birth and learning. But it was never securely based on land. Land was free, and both land and property were possible to nearly every thrifty worker. School began early to multiply and open their doors, even to the poor laborer. Birth began to count for less and less, and America became the world of a land of opportunity. So the world came to America, even before the revolution and afterward during the 19th century. 19 million immigrants entered the United States. The new labor that came to the United States, while it was poor, used to a used to oppression and accustomed to a low standard of living, was not willing, after it had reached America, to regard itself as a permanent laboring class, and it is in light of this fact that the labor movement among white Americans must be studied. The successful, well-paid American laboring class formed. Because of its property and ideals, the petty bourgeoisie, ready always to join the capital in exploiting the common labor, white and black, foreign and native, the more energetic and thrifty among the immigrants, caught the prevalent American idea uh, that here and uh, that here labor could become emancipated from the necessity of continuous toil and that of increasing proportion could join the class of exploiters and that is f- who made their income chiefly by profit derived through the hiring of labor. Abraham Lincoln expressed this idea, frankly, at Hartford in March in 1860. He said, I am not ashamed to confess that 25 years ago I was a hired laborer, mauling rails at work in a flat boat, just what might happen to any poor man's son. Then followed the characteristic philosophy of the time. I want every man to have his chance, and I believe a black man is entitled to it, which can... Uh, in which can be better in his condition when he may look forward and hope to be a hired laborer in this year and next work for himself afterward and finally hire men to work for him this is the true system yeah so again we we did the thing throughout uh linko uh when we were doing the, the the prelude where i think um, it, I may have been too generous to, to old Abe. I think I I think I was giving him the bumbling label. Like I was yeah. giving him this. Well, derp, derp, derp. He just kind of is stumbling into stupid decisions, and he's not as smart as people give him credit for. Um, but I think that's doing it a measure too low. He knew exactly what the fuck he was doing and what he was right, trying to capitalist, do. Yeah. He was absolutely making every minimal concession humanly possible to expand capitalism and expand the system that made this country immensely wealthy. That is all it was ever set to do. And yeah. he did it explicitly. Any of these plans what that is, weren't going to fit. So like when we talk about the 10% plan. Yes. They, he doesn't give a shit whether or not the South actually can, gives up or, or, or emotion or wants to rejoin the union. He needs them back in because he can't continue the country without them. He is not as good. A, he is not as powerful a leader with half of his states not back in. So he's going to set the bar as low as humanly possible for that to fucking happen. He was calculated and and a bad person. Not just object. Not just bum. Not dumb. Not 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 the man with gritty eyes and the math hat. Yeah. No no. He's just a fucking 
fucking asshole and should stop being held up as much. It took you a while to remember your own joke. That was good. Um, go back and look at the episode artwork on Twitter for the God. It haunts my nightmares. Fucking Jesus. Um, but yeah, that's I, that. That is something that I wanted to correct. I, I was trying to find the best way to, to bleed that in because it's not really a correction. I just don't like the tone I took with it. Where I, I think I was doing more like the citations it's, needed, where I I give him credit for bumbling into mistakes as opposed to actively calculating. Yeah, what if there's a rule that's like you know when uh, and it's always backwards. I don't know who made the, it's whoever made this rule is a really class apologist, but it's like when faced with you know nefariousness or stupidity, always assume stupidity. Oh yeah, that's uh, fucking what, fuck what, that shit. whatever that rule is. It's backwards. It's, it's completely it's entirely backwards. backwards. Yes. Um, yeah. Yeah. Uh, he was enunciating the widespread American idea that the son rising to a higher economic level than the father of the chance of the poor man to accumulate wealth and power, which made the European doctrine of a working class fighting for the elevation of all workers seem not only less desirable, but even less possible for average workers than they had formerly considered it. That is fucking hilarious because we just talked about that. That was yes. last. Yeah, that's the. Uh, whatever the social yeah, mobility, able, social mobility, yeah, your ability to, to, and that is absolutely something that it's. Yeah. This is the first time, like this is the first generation where you have a bunch of kids. You know, last generation had a little of it, and this generation has more of it. Where most yeah. of us are going to end up worse off or not not attaining the same level that our parents did because yeah. the system is yeah absolutely hit its breaking point absolutely but even there the goals are shitty it's like okay you know you you either <laughs> if, if social mobility was a thing it's like you know you either die a proletariat or you live long enough to be an exploiter well yeah but it seems it, yeah. like if you put it on the I think the interesting thing there and I'm again not not defending it in any way but no. if you put it on this level playing field where the assumption of capital if the if the base assumption of capitalism was yeah. Every single generation will end up better because that's the way they pitch it. That is like the neoliberal dream is, look, if you just shut up and let it go, every single generation is going to end up a little bit better off than the last generation. And if that keeps going, eventually everyone will have everything and will be fine if you do it on a long enough time. It's the Steven Pinker idea, which makes no sense because even within that theory, within that exact theory, there has to be someone for the next generation to exploit. But no, but they don't think it's exploitation. Yeah. They just think that the system magically produces value. It's just the next one waiting their turn. Yeah. They just think that it produces value exponentially and that it, it, it just is there just they magic don't, they don't believe in exploitation that's yeah how they can and it can't that. it can't definitely i mean there's going to be a point where they think that like i guess fewer laborers than than property owners will still make the profit for property i don't I, know i imagine that they that they in the same way that we parrot you know fully automated luxury communism think that there's some fully automated luxury capitalism coming along that'll just make it so that people don't have to work <laughs> but uh i don't i that may be being too generous to them they're yeah. probably just fucking idiots. Oh, no. Well, even then, again, you know, like we said, they're probably just maliciously lying. Exactly. To protect their to power. To try and protect their they're just exactly. They're just selling it. They're, and they're, and it's, it's snake oil sales. Exactly. Yeah. These workers came to oppose slavery not so much from a moral as, a, as from the economic fear of being reduced by competition to the level of slaves. They wanted a chance to become capitalists, and they found that chance threatened by the competition of a working class whose status at the bottom of the economic structure seemed permanent and inescapable. Now, that is expedient and true, but that's a really shitty reason to do it. Oh, yeah. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Yeah, yeah. 
At first, black slavery jarred upon them, and as early as the 17th century, German immigrants to Pennsylvania asked the Quakers innocently if slavery was in accord with the Golden Rule. Oh, dunking on Quakers! Oh, get in here! Get Martin Luther coming in, immigrating to Pennsylvania, talking talking about Golden Rules and shit. Get it, boys. Um, these were the very years when the white worker was beginning to understand the early American doctrine of wealth and prosperity, or wealth and property. You skipped the Quittens. Oh, man. Then gradually, as succeeding immigrants were thrown in difficult and exasperating competition with black workers, their attitude changed. These were the years in which the white worker was beginning to understand the early American doctrine of wealth and property. Yeah, baby. Yeah. Proud of that prosperity doctrine. To escape the liability of imprisonment for debt and even to gain the right of universal suffrage. Oh, my, my stars. Uh, he found pouring into cities like New York and Philadelphia emancipated Negroes with low standards of living competing for jobs which the lower class of unskilled white laborers wanted. Mm-hmm. For the immediate available jobs, the Irish particularly competed, and the employers, because of race antipathy and sympathy with the South, did not wish to increase the number of Negro workers so long as the foreigners worked just as cheaply. The foreigners, in turn, blamed blacks for the cheap price of labor. The result was race war. Riots took place in which there was at first simply the flaming of hostility of groups of laborers fighting for bread and butter. Then they turned into race riots. For three days in Cincinnati in 1829, a mob of whites wounded and killed free Negroes and fugitive slaves and destroyed property. Most of the black population, over 2,000, left the city and trekked to Canada. In Philadelphia, 1828 to 1840, a series of riots took place, which thereafter extended until after the Civil War. The riots of 1834 took the dimensions of a pitched battle and lasted for three days. 31 houses and two churches were destroyed. Other riots took place in 1835 and 1838, and in a two-days riot in 1842 caused the calling out of the militia with artillery. Yeah. Um, I mean, and this kind of comes back. There's no white person that this is inescapable for. Racism is a structure. They all have to battle both you yeah. know, outside and within ourselves yes. every single day in everything we do, or yes. we're doing everything about our life wrong. Uh, that said, you know, there is some material manifestations of slavery, colonization, stuff you can see. And so the kind of the only colonized, the only the only suffering white people that there are are Irish people. But it's Irish people in Ireland. And if you want to see some of the most racist people out there, you know, I mean, go to Boston to talk to some of the Irish people up there is yeah. is kind of a common thing, you know. So, like, you don't come to America and and and. St- they not racist. No. You know, it's just, it's so baked into this country. And it's the same thing we talked about earlier. It's using competition mm-hmm. to to radicalize the white working class. So, again, the ruling class are, are the purveyors and the creators of all this. But the malicious, hands-on racism comes out of this white working class because this competition has, has driven them to it that was set in place by the ruling class. And this is why you need solidarity. And that solidarity can't come from the oppressed classes, they're already trying it. They're also trying to survive much harsher conditions. It's got to come from white workers towards the oppressed classes, and historically, that's never happened, and that's why this is the capitalist, imperialist capital of of the whole world, was you know, this this setup as a a settler and a racist and a slaveholder and and everything like that has, has been kept up with this racism, even from the unpropertied and poor whites. And we have to change that. You know, yeah. the, the the colonized people are going to liberate themselves. Everybody's going to liberate themselves. But they have to be fighting who's actually oppressing them 
They can't fight the oppressing class and another oppressed class who is turned into oppressors for expediency. Yeah. It's just, it's too much. You can both be oppressed and oppress people. That's it's the, just that's about a, everyone does. It's, I was about to say, it's not, that's a, I think that's a concept where they're like, well, you're either oppressing just, or you're doing the oppressing. No. No, just no. about, yeah, it's not, it's not, it's, it's just about everyone is some part of an oppressed class. I mean, there's some people that are just straight up ruling class and they're, they're yes. just oppressors. But I mean, whether it's being cisgender, whether it's, it's, you know, uh, or not being LGBT at all, um, whether it's being male, whether it's uh, being white or, you know, being a colonized person or a black person or a person of color in America, you know, um, versus, you know, the other countries that America bombs. At some point, you are both an oppressor, uh, you know, and an oppressed person. And that could be pretty high. It's not a competition, but there, there's some no. level of it. It could be pretty high on, on let's say, the, the level of things where you're a white working class. So you're pretty well the oppressor of everyone except the actual ruling class. Yep. Uh, but you are oppressed by the ruling class. And it could be pretty low. You could be like, you know, uh, a black indigenous, you know, trans person of color. Right. And, and you know, maybe even a black indigenous trans person of color in a, in a land colonized by the United States. At some point, you're an oppressor uh, and an oppressee. And you, ha- you have a choice. You know, you can do this expedient defense of the situation where you're an oppressor, which is historically what has happened by the working class. And that's what maintains this system. Or you can team up in solidarity with the other oppressed people. Yes. And you can, you can be a class trader yes. for the class where you're the oppressor. And you can stand with the class where you're the oppressed. And you can fight that together. But you cannot just fight for the class where you're oppressed. Uh, you're never going to liberate them yourselves. It just period. It's never going to happen. Yes, 100%. In the 40s came quite a different class, the English and German workers who had tried by organization to fight the machine and in the end had to some degree envisioned the Marxian reorganization of industry through trade unions and class struggle. Yeah, you could tell he wasn't quite a Marxist yet, but no. there's a lot in this chapter you can tell he's, he's read, familiar with he's Marx. He's familiar with it. Yeah, um, he's, not, trying, he's not new to it. I'm trying to figure out in the late 1830s which groups had uh, envisioned or had had some degree envisioned oh envisioned it okay envisaged or did that mean they saw it i feel like he's saying that like these people saw the so marxist the same way that marx did yeah like for trade like we gave up with trade I mean, unions fair, and class struggle we got we marxism think, we think of a lot of marx works in like 1848 when he was really big and he wasn't he wasn't fully a materialist in like you know some of his early young Hegelian days, but Marx was out there even as a young Hegelian, mm-hmm. and I think I think even he's here. Either way, he's saying he sees it as a similar concept. I can see it. The attitude of these people toward the Negro was varied and contradictory. Oh wait, <laughs> people that are ostensibly leftist being shitty and racist. Weird. Never saw that before. Um, at first, they blurted out their disappropriation of slavery on a principle. It was a phrase of all wage slavery. They then they began to see a way. For the, for the worker in America through the free land of the West. Here was a solution such as was impossible in Europe. Plenty of land. <laughs> Never mind the people ripped off Thank that you. land. Thank you. Plenty of land, rich land, land com- coming daily nearer to its own markets to which the worker could retreat and restore the industrial balance ruined in Europe by the expropriation of the worker from the soil. Or in other words, the worker in America saw a chance to increase his wage, regulate his conditions of employment much greater than in Europe. The trade unions could have a material backing that they could not have in Germany, France, or England. This thought, curiously enough, instead of increasing the sympathy for the slave, turned it directly into rivalry and enmity. That is the most fucked up paragraph uh, in a while. 
I don't like any of that. That no. is upsetting to me. Uh, not because I think Du Bois is wrong, no, but because so the whole right. object here is that that is, and I see that so fucking much now, and it's infuriating to me. The, uh, the What they're saying here is these people were coming, they identified with Marxist ideology, and that's why they came over from America, because they recognized the contradictions they wanted out of Europe, because they saw the exploitation. Hey, we're going to come to America. If you get to America, and you're a Marxist or someone like that, and you see a group of oppressed people in a similar position that are struggling to get out, and your response to that is, well, but if I go but but all what Marx was saying is that all we needed is our land back and then we could own our means of production and then we're fine. So let's just go back to where there's free land that we can have. If your whole takeaway from Marxism was we need more land, please, you fucking missed the point. Not only did you miss the point, you missed explicitly chapters 26 to 32. Of you just Catholic fucking stiff armed the point away. <laughs> Kicked, kicked over the black person that is in chains on your way to trying to steal somebody else's land. Again, yeah. oh, we, we were forced off our land and that changed our relationship with the means of production. Hey, let's go kick some indigenous people off their land so we can change their relationship to the fucking means of production. <laughs> For Christ's sake, white people, could you be worse ever? Yeah. Ever. Yeah. Yeah. God damn it. That's infuriating. Well, and this talks about, too, the competition. We've talked about that. The, you know, capitalism uses that competition and, and does that expediency. That's, that, that seems to be that's going to be the subject of this chapter. It does seem the, to be. The draw of expediency to uphold whatever class you are the dominator. You know, the, the expediency not to be a class traitor as the oppressor and to hope that you're going to magically be lifted as the oppressed, which, I mean, may happen as an individual when you're stealing people's yeah. land, but it's not going to happen as a class. No. Um, but you know, I mean, of course, and this, this reminds me so much when you talk about decolonization and people are talking about liberating themselves. And, and of course there's people demanding as little healthcare and shit. Yeah. Uh, but you know, you talk about anti-imperialism or you talk about, you know, decolonizing the land and they're like, well, I don't, I don't want like this 1.5% of the people to tell me what to do. It's like, it's their fucking land. It's, I don't give a shit if you don't want them to. Right, they you had got, it. You're not competing with them for your power. You're ripping the power away from the capitalists so that you're improving everyone's conditions and getting rid of the also, problems of capitalism. Also, and I let's 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 have a discussion just to make sure I understand this right because as I understand it, when we're talking about giving the land back to the indigenous people, we're not saying that we're going to take the 1.5% of the population that is indigenous in this country and say you have all the land the rest of us will leave now. It's not yeah, how that's going to work. They're not- just going to have far more say in how the land is how how it's allocated, making the decisions on how it's allocated, figuring out what our relationship to the land is because it's their land. Yes, yes. It's their house. Figure figure out what the economy is, how we're going to sustainably keep the land, how we understand a relationship to the land so that we can use what we need off the land, but not think of the land as a resource, but think of something we go back to, which is going to help us with things like reforestation is going to help. It's going to help them practice their culture fully. You it's know? not I mean, white genocide just because we want to people. It's not the land white Nakba. Yeah. Oh, my God. <laughs> Crystal knock, but what? Wait for it. It's for white people. Honestly, I'd be okay with that if we could get that. If That's, we could get crystal knock for white people, guys, I would. I. I it. It would be fair, but I, it's not. It's not expedient for anyone. I. Uh, I mean, let's not say anyone. <laughs> it's expedient for some people. Okay. We deserve it so badly. Uh, the new immigrants. 
Oh, no, the wisest of the leaders could not clearly envisage just how slave labor in conjunction and competition with free labor tended to reduce all labor toward slavery. For this reason, the union and labor leaders gravitated toward the political party, which opposed tariff bounties and welcomed immigrants, quite forgetting that this same Democratic Party had as, as its backbone the planter oligarchy of the South with its slave labor. Oh, man, people don't recognize uh, parties' allegiances. Ugh. Before siding with them for expediency reasons? I've been dealing with enough electoralism right now. Welcome back. <laughs> Welcome back. The new Ugh. immigrants. I love the new immigrants. The new immigrants. As opposed to those old immigrants. Yes. The new immigrants and their competition with this group reflected not simply the general attitude of America toward colored people, but particularly they felt a threat of slave competition, which these Negroes foreshadowed. The Negroes worked cheaply. Partly from custom, partly as their only defense against competition. The white laborers realized that Negroes were part of a group of millions of workers who were slaves by law and whose competition kept white labor out of the work of the South and threatened its wages and stability in the North. When now the labor question moved west and became a part of the land question, the competition of black men became of increased importance. Foreign laborers saw more clearly than most Americans the tremendous significance of free land in abundance. It wasn't free! (laughs) Uh, Such as America possessed. In open contrast to the land monopoly of Europe. But here on this free land, they met not only a few free Negro workers, but the threat of a mass of slaves. The attitude of the West toward Negroes, therefore, became sterner than that of the East. Here was the possibility of direct competition with slaves and the absorption of Western lands into the slave system. This must be resisted at all costs. But beyond this... Even free Negroes must be discouraged. On this, the Southern poor white immigrants insisted. I I feel like it's interesting when they talk about the competition because not only is it, I mean, again, that's the, the subject of this whole chapter. It applies as it should, you know, to the black population and and something we need to understand about white chauvinism historically and today but it's also interesting because we tie this stuff back to today and certainly it's not like a black indigenous people of color are not just as oppressed today we that that's been extensively talked about this episode last as it should be and will be the rest of this book Uh, but also it brings about a little bit of light that can both reflect on the level of violence that they took back then that, that an easy way to see that in today and something that's its own issue now when you look at these concentration camps on the southern border because you see the same competition and it's never from European immigrants it's it's from these immigrants you know up from the south they're taking our jobs away yep. and look how that manifests into you know into the the three percenters and and other militias going out and literally hunting people in assistance with the border patrol. Uh, You know, the laws against leaving water for people to not die roaming the desert because you've set them there to try to reconnect with their family or find an opportunity to survive. The concentration camps where children are ripped away, where entire families were in cages, kept together in cages, sleeping on the floor in concentration camp conditions since the Obama times. And again, that's become worse in Trump times because they're far more overcrowded and you're adding the family separation to it uh, it's it's unbelievable that it always comes back to this competition you know we're going to keep our jobs away it's 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 always what happens when you're pulling the ladder up from in front of you yeah. it, uh, the ladder up from underneath you is it's a violent means and it's it's always predicate it's always tied back to the capitalism because it's tied back to the surplus labor pool mm-hmm. this is all it, it, 
a part, yeah. just as much as supply and demand dictates everything else in capitalism. Yeah. Supply and demand in the in the surplus labor pool absolutely dictates how what roots capitalism is going to use to try and exploit people. When yeah, when you there see is the reserve army of labor, and instead of we need to be liberated altogether, exactly. it's it's let those fuckers die, just keep them out of my way. Exactly, I just want a better job. Exactly, every single time. Mm-hmm. In the meantime problem of the black worker had not ceased to trouble the conscious and the economic philosophy of America. Oh, let's hear about the economic, <laughs> the conscious and philosophy of America. Oh, goody. <laughs> that the worker should be a bond slave was fundamentally at variance with the American doctrine, and the demand for the abolition of slavery had been continuous since the revolution. In the North, it had resulted in freeing gradually all of the Negroes, but the comparatively small number of those thus freed was being augmented now by fugitive slaves from the South, and manifestly the ultimate plight of the black worker depended upon the course of southern slavery there arose then in the 30s and among thinkers and workers a demand that slavery in the united states be immediately abolished this demand became epitomized in the create crusade of william lloyd garrison himself a poor printer but a man of education thought an indomitable courage this movement was not primarily a labor movement or a ma- matter of profit and wage. It simply said that under any condition of life, the reduction of a human being to real estate was a crime against humanity of such enormity that its existence must be immediately ended. Sounds right, yeah. Very (laughs) uncontroversial (laughs) statement, William. Thank you. (laughs) After emancipation, there would come questions of labor, wage, and political power. But now, first, must be demanded that ordinary human freedom and recognition of essential manhood, which slavery blasphemously denied. Yes. 100% yes. Mm -hmm. Full stop yes. This philosophy of freedom was a logical continuation of the freedom philosophy of the 18th century, which insisted that freedom was not an end, but an indispensable means to the beginning of human progress, and that democracy could function only after dropping of feudal privileges, monopoly, and chains. The propaganda, which made the abolition movement terribly real, was the fugitive slave. The piece of intelligent humanity who could say, I have been owned like an ox. I stole my own body, and now I am hunted by law and lashed to be made an ox again. By no conception of justice could such logic be answered. Nevertheless, at the same time, white labor, while it attempted no denial, but even expressed faint sympathy, saw in the fugitive slave and in the millions of slaves behind him willing and eager to work for less than current wage and competition for their own jobs. What they failed to comprehend was that the black man enslaved was even more formidable and fatal competitor than the black man free. That is, I I mean, it's so been building the whole chapter, but this... Yeah, it's comp- so good. And it, what it, it competition you, does. It brings you back to when Harry Haywood was talking about organizing yes. labor and the struggles of that uh, in the South and the coal mines. Especially, yeah, I was just, this whole thing yes. has made me think of the coal when he was organizing mm-hmm. essentially white workers against their yeah. black counterpart, but because of where they were having to interject themselves in the, in the yes. movement and this, that competition that they should have all been on the same page. And obviously Haywood, he pulled in, I can't remember the outside order that he pulled in. Um, I have to go back and re relook at it. It was a fairly <laughs> famous one. You mean we have to go back and reread black Bolshevik darn such a horrible, ah, horrible burden. I, we were complaining about capital. I will not complain about rereading. I know. No, that seriously. I, I will never, Deign to reread uh, Capital again. I see no point to it. I yeah. will reread Black Bolt. One hundred percent. It is yes. a. Fin- it is one of the most important. This is the interesting thing we're getting into. This and then Black Reconstruction already feels like it. These are uh, giant works that I. Well, they relate to. Dire- I mean, it's not. You need the capitalist or the the communist the the 
capitalist critique, the communist foundation in theory, like state and revolution to know yeah. what we're doing. And, and state and revolution is so huge to communist movements in America that we're, we're reflecting on here. Yeah. But it's got to be applied to our, this, our material conditions. I think that's the important and it's thing. so much more poignant than we're doing. And listen to the, I mean, some of these sentences just hit so hard because, I mean, this is America. You know, I stole my own body yeah. and now I am hunted by law and lashed to be made an ox again. Yeah. That's America. That's the root of cops. Yes. Right there. That's what cops did. Yes. That's what they are. That And that's the whole thing. That was, that was, we saw it the first time with, I think that's why, I think that's why, I mean, again, Wretched of the Earth, I think, hit probably the most of anything we've done so yes. far um just because that is such a fun it, i mean that is such a fundamental work in that space and, and yeah. the, the truths to get to are kind of undeniable yet hard to reckon with um but black bolshevik and black reconstruction especially have been i, I feel I, I don't know why this feels so much more directly every bit of this is something that i could point to anyone i organized with or, or, or engaged with and can point to direct no this is 1000 percent relevant in what we're doing yeah in what we organize and how we talk and how we do things like you can argue oh well the conditions are different for you know the russian revolution to now and you know, maybe what lenin was talking about right. that's bullshit lenin's always right fuck off um but <laughs> but each, this you can point to here but this yeah. one is more recent and two is it, it is re- it is well, I don't so know about more recent is this no? This one probably is more recent. Yes, it is absolutely. Um, no, yes, this is more recent. Um, you know, the biggest one is. So we 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 always talk about it, and Kim Il Sung talked about it a lot in uh, in the piece we did with the mandatory RT guys, um, Andrews. But it was to lead a revolution in in Korea. He was constantly critiquing. Well, they had pictures up of the the Ural steppes, you know, the Russian steppes, and they're yep. gorgeous por- portraits of this landscape. Do we not have beautiful landscapes in Korea? Yeah. Do we not have, you know, we we have people, you know, adopting the form of of Russian, you know, socialism or Chinese socialism? Do we not have ideas worth, you know, bleeding here? How, we can't critique, and he would, and he was going on. Well, that's going to pro- be so important here. We've talked this, these whole two episodes about decolonization. You know, yeah. We don't need to make the the USSA. I mean, no. Certainly, I think there's going to be just out of expediency, it'll happen when this this land gets overturned and set back to the indigenous nations that it belongs to being. They're still going to wind up being a centralized formulation for planning in in modern trade economy and defense. But we don't have to set that exact goal or do it do it the Soviet way, no. you know, necessarily. We need to do this our way, a way that fits this the, the United that States. Fits, but the only and way to know the conditions... Stop it from being the United States, of course. You no, know. but the Send only way to, to know... Turtle Island. The only way to know, to be able to effectively communicate with the masses, yeah. to be able to effectively communicate with the people you're talking to, um, was you have to know the history of your people. Yeah, your own history, that your hist- own conditions. Your own which- history, your own conditions. And to be able to, this is, it, I, again, we feel, I feel like we think we know American history. And so we kind of like dive to go, other. I mean, again, Russia and all these other places. But knowing the actual history of this country, uh, I think is going to be fundamental to anything we try and do mm-hmm. because it's going to be so, this is the reality that people live in. This is mm-hmm. the world that we've lived in and that we're trying to decolonize. We we have to be able to speak to what actually happened, how it happened, and when it happened, because that's the, otherwise we're not identifying with the people we're trying to to, yeah. to help liberate. Yes. 
including ourselves. Yes. Um, that being said, we're done. Oh, I was about to read. He cut me off. Yeah, yeah. I saw you were getting ready to read. No, we are. We have, <laughs> we have hit it. Uh, we are still on pace for a, a, a tight 76 episode run of uh, Black Reconstruction in America. So just keep up that very good pace. Just keep up that pace, and we'll see you guys sometime in 2022. Um, no, but again, we, we put it out last time. We'll put it out again this time. We have no update yet because we're recording these in the same session. If for any reason you would prefer this no longer, you know, you want this to go back to being summarized as opposed to the audiobook with commentary that we have kind of evolved into. Um, you, whatever, whatever is best for you guys, we are we want to accommodate because again, this is uh, yeah. Me and David can read a book on our own if we want to. This is for this is for what what works best for everyone else's organization or what what helps be most impactful for you. Yeah. So if if it doesn't help your party, your org to s- send people after they've done a reading group home, you know, or if it doesn't help you as an individual trying to read as you go, you know, like go out and do things and come back and listen to this for your reading or to compliment your reading because it takes too much time or we take too long to get through too few books, tell us to summarize and yeah. we'll work on that. If it's better for us to let the authors speak because these are people of color, these are people that need to speak the most more than two white guys yes. in a basement um, and just allow us to use contacts and tie it back to events to today and and you know kind of keep pace to to what they're saying every few paragraphs and yeah. kind of break from straight text so that like you can absorb it uh, then we'll keep up our model yeah. now to be and that being said just just for just so you guys know kind of what what where my head's at or where we're, we're kind of jointly at on this um one thankfully thank god we are not the only <laughs> podcast in this space yeah um I, obviously we have uh brett and allison over at uh, red menace that do yes. a do Excellent are doing job in terms of the summary portion of it again we we overlap on a lot of works but because of yeah. their model and they, we'd never do that tight of a summary that's no they, no no no, they, no. they, they own like, that space and they do yeah. it they do it wonderfully um but then we also have uh the red book club uh, mm-hmm. Which are working? They are we. They covered capital at this uh, as well. I think all we've two have overlapped on capital, but Brett and Allison never did capital, and so there's there's a little bit of overlap. But then everyone always does their own thing. I think they're all. I know for a fact they're all doing uh, Sylvia Federici's uh, Caliban and the Witch. I believe is what they're reading through right now. So we are not. There are all sorts of tools out there for this and anyone that wants to get into this you know if you if you really feel strongly that there's a book that's not being discussed and that you want to discuss it i i cannot encourage people enough if you feel that passionately about it and you have it go do this this is not uh this is not something that should be gate kept like everybody should get out there and spread it but we yep. like i said we just want to do what whatever is most helpful for the community but right now i have felt better as we read these books i don't want to rely on me interpreting what an author said i i don't no. think and i don't I, think that highly of myself yes yeah i mean then in some situations we'll have to do that because it's not say in the public domain or we're collaborating with someone like maybe we'll be do, like we'll be doing with redskins white exactly mask. redskins white mask is the first one that's going to be problematic for that exact reason because it's not in public domain yeah um, uh but to to whatever degree we can we do like reading it out that said if that's not what's helping people exactly so we'd have to see a, like and we're not going to see like two people go we'd prefer you summarize and then switch I mean we're going to have to see a lot of exactly, people yeah. say that but if that's better we've note we've just meted out like how long this is going to take us over a year we thought mm, maybe we should discuss doing that yeah maybe maybe we should give it to the people like I said I so I, uh, I just like let it, us know yeah yeah just let us know what you want us to do and we yeah. are, we are more than amenable yeah uh, that being said uh, if you want to talk to us and let us know these kinds of things. 
the easiest way to do that is uh, either emailing us, uh, which is marksmadnesspod at gmail.com. Um, you can throw it up on Twitter. Our DMs are open or, or just on the main feed. That is uh, at marksmadnesspod on Twitter. Um, or if you would prefer have a very long, drawn-out conversation about this over several days or uh, or just chill out and watch Dr. Strangelove like I did last night, um, feel free to jump in the Dumb and Awful Discord because that is where I spend most of my time and will sooner or later force David into whether he likes it or not so that I'm uh, I'm not the only one in there having to, to, to do these things. But in the meantime, uh, I am Nathan. I'm David. Bye! Bye.